gotten in the habit of trying to reread my previous sermon before I come up and preach again. Because sometimes thoughts get stuck in my head and I find myself like repeating myself two or three weeks later. And I try not to do that to you all. Um, and realize we preach for about 15 minutes or so and two of them together is 30 minutes, but that's maybe still about 20 minutes too long for our attention spans. And so I went back and I reread what I had preached two or three weeks ago about divisions and disagreements and how we can disagree within the body of Christ and still find unity. And then we read through the, the next passage in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And it, it just got me thinking about that from a new angle. You know, rather than saying, hey, here's the thing that we need to avoid. We need to avoid the disagreements that cause this kind of division. It kind of reminded me of that thing where people ask you, hey, whatever you do, I need you to not think of a giant purple elephant. All right? And of course, the first thing that pops into your head as soon as I say that is a giant purple elephant. And you can't not think about the giant purple elephant because it's hard to just do nothing and not do it and not think about it. What's better is to replace it with something good. And so maybe instead of preaching against division and argument and disagreements in the church, maybe a better way would be to say, this is how we find unity. And so every once in a while I hear someone utter the phrase, well, now I've been to church. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, but I, in particular, maybe it's an occupational thing, but I, I hear it fairly often. And so depending on the context, there are a few things that the phrase means, depending on who's saying it and when and where. And maybe the, the least helpful version is where someone is just giving their approval. Like, you know, they'll come to me and they're like, well, Pastor, now I've been to church. Like, you did a good job. You know, kind of pat on the back kind of thing. And so maybe they're happy that we sang their favorite song or the prayer was especially loud that Sunday or the sermon was loud and passionate and not at all convicting. But whatever the case may be, sometimes people feel like they've been to church when they've come and they've checked all the right boxes and we've made sure that all the right things happened. And sometimes I think at its best, though, that phrase is used as a recognition of what God had been able to do. See, they, I think sometimes what happens is we, we believe that we've been to church with a capital C because we've seen the Spirit of God at work. And I think this is the, the best way to know if you've been to church, is if you examine your own heart and you look at people around you and you check to see if the Spirit has been welcomed into that place. Because I believe that God is omnipresent, meaning he's always everywhere. God is in, in all things. I'm not convinced he's always welcome. I think that God is in the Oval Office even on the days they don't consult him. I believe that God is in every church and in every pew. And I think that he's also present around every brunch table at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning at Bob Evans. If Jesus is at every celebration and every funeral and he sees every triumph, every failure, every injustice, God is at all places at all times. But the question is, is he welcome? And so I think when Paul was talking to the Corinthians, he took this into account, right? He, he acknowledged that when he talked to them, he couldn't give them the meat and potatoes of what he really wanted to talk about. He had to give them the milk. He had to give them the, the, the baby food, for, for lack of a better term. 
know, he, he wanted to go on to the complicated things. He wanted to go on to see what the fullness of the Spirit of God might be able to do in their lives. But he had to start with the simple stuff. What drives me up the wall is that I read through the New Testament, though, and there's, there's another passage that I always kind of link these two in my head. Because in the book of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews, who is not Paul, we don't really know who it was, but the author of the book of Hebrews was talking about the elementary truths of God's word that you need to nail down before you can go on to the complicated stuff. And they actually have a list. So the intimidating thing is when you read through that list that is the elementary stuff, the simple stuff, the stuff that everyone should kind of like, you know, this is two plus two plus four of spirituality. This is the basics. That list is repentance, baptism, praying for one another, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Basics, right? You know, the easy stuff. You know, like, who isn't comfortable talking about resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, and the details of the theology of baptism? Like, that's the simple stuff. But I wonder how well we've really kind of latched onto those ideas, right? Because I, I don't think what Paul or the author of Hebrews meant was everybody needs to have written some sort of master's level thesis on the sacrament of baptism. Like, that's... That's not at all what he's talking about. And everyone goes, okay, good. Um, but I think his question is really, are you comfortable and practiced at repentance? Is that something that you can go, yeah, I have I made mistakes. I, I messed that up. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? That's the basics. If we're not good at that, that's, that's something you practice. That's something you start. Do you, do you understand what, what baptism is? Do you understand that it's, it's God at work in you and that we needed him to work in us? And so we've died to what we used to be and we're something new now. You know? No master's level thesis there, but if you know that and you believe that, we should live differently than people who don't know that and don't believe that. Because if you don't know that God needed to kill the old you <laughs> and raise you to life again, that should change things. So how good are we at praying for people? Is that intimidating? Is that weird? Um, maybe you don't feel comfortable praying in front of people for people. Maybe on Sunday morning, you know, we get to the prayer time and you're, you're praying to yourself, but you don't feel comfortable talking out loud, and that's fine. But do you feel comfortable approaching God's throne room and saying, hey, Father, I have a friend who needs you. Can I, can I kind of intercede? Can I talk on their behalf for a second? Because I want you and them to be close. We should be comfortable with that. That's basics. And then you want to talk about the resurrection of the dead and judgment. That sounds intimidating, right? And I don't think, I don't know if you ever had to do this, when I was in uh, eighth grade English class, I actually had to read the essay, or the sermon rather, The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. It's this famous example of this guy in like John Wesley's contemporary who preached this sermon that was, the gist of the sermon was literally, God is holding you by a thread over the fiery pits of hell. Let's pray really hard he doesn't let go. You better live right. Right? 
Um, that is not free Methodist theology. That is not how we preach. That is not how we believe. And so what do we believe about judgment? What do we believe about the resurrection of the dead? Do you believe that one day God's going to ask you about your life? And you're going to have to answer him? Do you think that if we believed that, we might make different choices sometimes? Do you believe that God can raise the dead to life again? Because apparently, according to pop wisdom, death and taxes are the two certainties in life. But if God can undo death, if God can raise the dead to life again, and that's an integral part of judgment, is the raising to life again of those who have died. Kind of changes how you feel about judgment, huh? Because it's not just you got to be afraid because God might drop you in the pit of fire. The judgment day is not just, it's not fear. It's respect, certainly. It's living carefully. It's living aware of that judgment is coming. But it's also knowing that with judgment comes resurrection. So if we believe that that is God's end game, is not only judgment, but resurrection. That's the basics. It changes everything. If you don't have that figured out, then that's where we start. We gotta get better at praying for each other and repenting and believing in the baptism, which is a little mini death and resurrection. And judgment and the redemption and raising to life again of what is dead. Because if we believe those things, if we've got those basics down, the things that fundamentally change how we see the world, it requires us to act. If we believe that God can raise the dead and we're expected to repent and seek redemption for ourselves and others, we should be able to rally and find unity in that with anyone else who believes that. And so Paul wrote to the church in Corinth because they were divided, but he reminds them that God is in the business of making us grow, and it doesn't matter much who plants or who waters so long as God gets the credit for what God has done. And so I think that growth is that essential concept, and it's, it's way more important than we initially give it credit for. In our Wesleyan tradition, the word we use for that is sanctification. And so sanctification is what happens when you move past the transactional, okay, God, I'm giving you my life, you're giving me heaven, we're good. You move past that, and you acknowledge that you're letting God change you today, tomorrow, yesterday. And God continually gives grace that is new every morning that continually makes you different and more like him. That's sanctification. It it's, takes time. It's not going to happen all at once, barring a miracle of God. I mean, if he wants to completely and utterly sanctify you in one moment, he can. I haven't seen that. You're probably going to spend the rest of your life working at sanctification, and that's what discipleship is. And so sanctification is God's work to make you new. Discipleship is letting other people help God make you new. And so everyone needs to have somebody they're learning from. Everybody should have someone that they're teaching. And ideally, you've got quite a few of each. 
And while family members and spouses should be in that category, they don't count. You need to go beyond that. You do the family for free. And so, again, like what would happen if we took that responsibility for ourselves and others seriously? What if every single one of us was making an intentional effort to learn from a few people, to teach a few people, and to make our everyday decisions with the expectation that we're going to get things wrong, but we're going to repent, we're going to learn, God will forgive, and we will be better. And we'll have help to do that. We have the grace of God for sanctification, and we have the support of our brothers and sisters through discipleship. We can do this together. And so that's the unifying mission of church. You know, I mean, as much as I love playing bass guitar, it's not an essential part of worship. <laughs> it's not an essential part of church. It's, it's deeper and different than that. At its best, singing songs helps us learn and disciples us together. If we pick songs that teach, we pick songs that we can sing together and encourage one another with, then yes, absolutely, let's do lots of that. But if you're coming because Pastor Kevin just really great at bass guitar, mm, <laughs> sorry to disappoint you, and that's not the point. And so if we, we look at this, we've got this, this mission. What if the church was full of people that didn't think they had to hide their mistakes, but felt comfortable and free to acknowledge them, to confess them, and then to leave them behind? What if people knew that we were a people who cared about grace and transformation and maybe even people who could care less about blame? Because that's not the point. And if we were able to rally around that kind of mission, then we're set. But if we don't have that kind of mission, that unifying yes, this is what we're here to do, that's when we run the risk of being divided. We need to know why we're here. Otherwise, we run the risk of becoming factions of believers, each choosing a specific pastor or a specific denomination or a specific worship style or a specific way of praying. And so when we divide ourselves along those unhealthy lines, we, we make the Holy Spirit unwelcome. We drive out the Holy Spirit and we replace the divine presence of the Creator God with a nice club with spiritually themed social events. And those events are certainly not going to be designed to make us aware of our faults. Those gatherings are going to help us kind of hide our faults and suppress them. And we abandon repentance and we practice false piety instead. And so we have homework. Our homework is to pray that God convicts us of what we have done wrong. That God would point out those places in our lives where we need to grow. We need to change. We need to be, be new. And we need to trust our brothers and sisters in Christ to check our blind spots for us. Because there are things that you're not going to see yourself. We need to live our lives with the expectation that we will be changed and that we welcome the work of God in our lives, whether that comes through prayer or whether that comes through the gentle correction of our congregation and our friends and our brothers and our sisters. And so years ago, I, 
I wanted to make discipleship a priority in our church. And I'm not sure I explained what I meant all that well. But the goal was that we would seek out the Holy Spirit in our individual lives, that we would meet with him, and that we would seek godly brothers and sisters that will do that for us, that will check our blind spots so that we can see the things that maybe they're in the back of your head and you just can't see it unless you hold the mirrors the right way, which Melanie is good at and I still can't get the hang of. I can't see the back of my head in the bathroom to save my life. I need help for that. We need spiritual help for that so that they can see those blind spots on our souls also. And so we need to let the Holy Spirit continue the holy work. It's going to be awful. I, I don't know if you've ever actually asked God to point out the things in your life that you need to change. I mean, those of you that have done it, you kind of know how terrible it is because all of a sudden the things that you thought you were okay in, like, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a great, I'm a kind person. And God's like, yeah, but what about that time? <laughs> yeah, but what about when people do this? How do you respond then? How good are you at loving your neighbor when? And then you're just kind of sitting there praying, going, okay, God, um, do I get a take back on this prayer? Do I, okay, no, you're right, I'll, I'll work on that. And so I just, I recently watched a, a TV show with what I think is just the perfect short conversation because the main character of the TV show had just gone on his first run, maybe ever, right? And he'd led a completely, terribly unhealthy lifestyle. And so you know how like, they do those back from commercial shots where you see the house from the outside on sitcoms and stuff? Well, for like two whole seasons of this TV show, Every time they show that shot when they come back from commercial, there's this one dude who's always running by the house. And so like the first couple times you're like, who's that guy? He's gonna be important later, I just know it. And then after like two full seasons of the show, you kind of forget about him. Until the main character is running up a hill, coughing and wheezing his way up the hill, and I felt so much spiritual solidarity with him at this point. And he collapses at the top of the hill, rolls over onto his back in the grass next to the road, and that guy who's been running by for two full seasons runs up and stops. And he just looks at him. And he says, hey, it gets easier. He's like, what? No, no, he, it gets easier. Every day it gets a little easier. But you got to do it every day. That's the hard part. But it gets easier. And then he runs off. So if you decide to do your homework tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the Holy Spirit starts poking areas of your life that are maybe places you wished he'd leave alone and maybe you give a close friend and brother and sister permission to kind of point out some other spots and you start to feel a little bit like a shish kebab with lots of holes in you, and you're just like, this is awful, this is terrible, I hate this. And you just collapse on the side of the road. I hope that you have a friend, a family member, a pewmate, or maybe an angel sent from God who's going to run up to you the first time you collapse from exhaustion at the work of discipleship. And I hope they look you in the eye and they say, hey, it gets easier. 
every day, it gets a little easier. But you got to do it every day. That's the hard part. But it gets easier. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would begin that work with any of us who are willing to let you. This work of discipleship, it's, it's the only reason we're here. I mean, I like these people, but if we're not growing and if we're not changing, it's just, it's not the point. So Father, I pray that if we need spiritual milk, that you would feed us. If we're ready to graduate to pureed peas, then give us those. And I look forward to the day that we can eat the spiritual meat and potatoes that you have ready for us, that we can sit at your banquet table together. And we know that we got there together. Because at its best, that's what church is. We welcome you here today. We celebrate your table this morning. Pray that you would raise us to life again.